the recovery radio show. It's probably all butterflies and bullshit. Welcome back to the Recovery Radio Show. My name's Ken, and today I am joined by Alex C. And we're going to be talking a bit about does mental health cause addiction? Is it a byproduct of addiction, or does it have nothing at all to do with it? Which I don't think is the case, and I don't think Alex does either. But no. uh, we're going to get there. So, Alex, how are you today, my friend? Thank you for taking the time to join me. Absolutely glad to be here. Uh, I'm doing good today. Doing all right. Awesome. Another day uh, so far sober. So it's a good day. Hell yeah. It doesn't get much better than that, right? Nope. Not Actually, at all. I, I would like to take a second just to say, you know, we do have a little bit of a disclaimer on the show. So anyone listening, please remember that the Recovery Radio Show is for educational purposes only. We are not affiliated with any treatment center, fellowship, support group, religious, spiritual group, any of that stuff. All right, so this show should never, ever take the place of professional medical care or advice. If you're in need of emergency medical attention, dial 911, right? And if you're currently struggling with active addiction, please remember there is always hope. And some withdrawals, especially alcohol and benzos, uh, can result in death. So please get the help you deserve. You are worthy of the life you have been dreaming of. Uh, sorry about that, Alex, but I just wanted to put that out there right from the rip. And uh, I'm going to give it to you, man. So mm -hmm. who the heck are you? What's your story? And uh, yeah, I guess that's it. My name's Alex. Um, I am an alcoholic. You know, it's funny that you talked about the disclaimer and withdrawals because, you know, I've dealt with many uh, pretty horrible alcohol withdrawal. But uh, so my story kind of begins um, as a child. It, it kind of all starts with my dad. Um, he was an alcoholic. Uh, everybody on his, you know, everybody on my dad's side of the family is now, not is an alcoholic, but has some addictive tendencies. Um, and, you know, from early on, I was kind of affected by the dangers of alcohol. When I was four years old, my dad at 30, he was 30 at the time. He had already gotten uh, cirrhosis of the liver, portal hypertension is a complication of cirrhosis and it ended up uh what ends up happening is the varices inside your throat um end up bursting and you could very easily bleed out holy shit. i don't remember any of this because i was only four years old um however you know i've heard the stories that it looked like a murder scene inside it was actually my bedroom um because he was you know throwing up blood and so that was kind of a huge wake-up call for my dad um, you know, the doctor told him that if he drank again, he would die. What ended up happening was uh, my dad ended up with a few years of sobriety. I'm pretty sure around like eight or nine years old, uh, he started drinking again. And that during that period of sobriety, he was, you know, an absolutely incredible father. He was always a really good father. You know, he wasn't the stereotypical, like, angry, drunk, like, you know, he was a very kind, loving person. Growing up, I, was, I played a lot of sports. Like I played baseball, and my dad was my baseball coach. Like he was heavily involved. It was it was wonderful. Um, the first night I, I found out that you know he drank was I was I had to study for a test. I came home. I was about I think I was nine or ten years old at this point. He had just relapsed, and my mom and him got into a huge fight over it. 
And that's when my mom told me that my dad has a drinking problem. During that relapse, he ended up needing back surgery. He ended up having the surgery and it was a really taxing spinal surgery. And he ended up being put on opiates afterwards and he got addicted oh, to the opiates. So that addictive personality took over with the opiates. Within a couple of years, he was buying off the streets and stealing money. He ended up stealing you know, money from my neighbor and he went on the run to New Hampshire, uh, kind of just running away from all his issues. What ended up happening was he got picked up. You know, it was a horrific time, obviously. It was the official wake-up call that he needed to get. And he ended up going to uh, a rehab facility in Norwich. I'm in Connecticut, so that's about an hour and a half away from me. And he went to AA. He, you know, went to live in a sober house, and he was doing very, very well. So it was tough because I didn't get to see him as often as I was before. And, you know, I still had a huge amount of love for my father. And it was kind of tough, but, um, you know, we made it work at the time. Throughout high school, I don't think he was drinking. You know, uh, to be honest, I can't be so sure these days. But when I hit around 20, 20 years old, that's when the drinking started. I know that he just, start, he just started with beer and, you know, the uh, alcoholics, we could justify anything. So, oh, I'm just drinking beer. I'm not an alcoholic. Um, right, yep. And then it turned back to the 100 proof Majorska pints, you know, all over his car. Like, we knew what was going on. Um, and then he had another varicose vein issue. So he was hospitalized again for that. That didn't scare him enough because a couple of years later, uh, he ended up passing. He ended up dying from alcoholism. Um, he, the main artery in his liver or the main vein in his liver or something like that, uh, it burst and he essentially just bled out from the inside. And, uh, you know, I remember that night I was coming home and I saw an ambulance and I noticed that the ambulance was right in front of my house. I had no clue what was going on. I remember I went to run into the house and some paramedics stopped me and said, who are you? Who are you? And my mom came running out crying saying, that's my son. And he was pronounced dead a couple hours later. And that's when my downfall really started. I was always the type, you know, strong guy. I'm not going to, you know, push my problems on anybody else. I'm going to suck it up. I'm going to deal with it. Then it just slowly descended to where I am today. Um, so enough about my dad. When I started drinking when I was 14. Um, I played hockey. There were some upperclassmen parties. And, you know, that's when I really started drinking with the, uh, with the boys. It, was, it wasn't an issue. I remember the first time I drank, I got caught, and it scared the shit out of my mom because, you know, that, the alcoholism runs deep. Right, of course. I, in my head, I, I, I knew I was good at the time. So it wasn't even across my mind to drink all the time or anything like that. But I've always had social anxiety. And now all of a sudden, um, drinking this stuff that's like, you know, they call it liquid courage for a reason. You know, I could finally go and talk and think that I could be myself. You know, I'm not hiding from who I am. Um, so I drank throughout high school, smoked some weed, um, nothing too big. I ended up going to college, getting blackout drunk and celebrating in college. So, you know, I, it, it was the same as everybody else. I was drinking, I could honestly say the same as everybody else at that time. Um, when I got... I ended up getting a job uh, probably about 45 minutes away from my house. 
And I was about 20 at the, at the time because I had gone to college and I ended up dropping out because of um, my depression. Because all of a sudden I was sitting inside a restaurant and I just started uncontrollably sobbing. No clue why. Scared the shit out of me. But, um, you know, that was kind of the telltale sign, like, well, maybe you need some help. So I ended up going to uh, see a psychiatrist. I got put on antidepressants. And, you know, things were a little bit better. Um, still struggled with the anxiety. When I had got that job 45 minutes away, that's when I started like, oh, I have money. I have a lot of money now. Um, let me start dabbling in the craft beers. Uh, so I would pick up a six pack on the, on the 45 minute drive home and the six pack would be gone by the time I got home. Uh, usually I also picked up a, like half a pint, you know, to, just to feel good. This wasn't every day. You know, it was just kind of, it was the start of right. the... And in the start, we can convince ourselves, because it's not every day, mm -hmm. that it's not that big of a problem, right. right? I only do, I might drink a six-pack in 45 minutes in the car, but I only do it a couple times a exactly. week, right? I'm not an everyday drinker. Mm -hmm. And, I hear you. you know, <laughs> drunk driving, who gives a shit, you know? Like, I, I didn't care at the time. But I, I recognize the signs. I recognize the symptoms of okay, maybe I'm drinking a little bit too much and I calm down, you know, cause I did see my dad my whole life and all those horrific memories stuck. So those memories were still holding me back from really like falling down into the pit of alcoholism. After my dad passed, I ended up leaving my job. I was pretty much isolated for like an entire year. Didn't have a job. I babysat my nephew. He was like four or five years old at the time. That got me through the whole thing. Um, or at least I thought it got me through the whole thing. Right. Then I ended up getting a job at Amazon because, you know, my self-worth started to really go down because I wasn't working. I wasn't contributing anything to society. And I was, you know, I was starting to get depre like depressed again. And it ended up... Um, I ended up starting drinking during Amazon, like during work, you know, because Amazon was again, 45 minutes away. So I would drink on the way home and then I started drinking on the way there. And then I started drinking during and, you know, but it was like when I got to Amazon, I excelled. I was the prototypical functioning alcoholic, you know, like I was, uh, like I was able to secure some a couple of promotions. Like I was recognized as you know one of the better employees in the facility, but it was still working at Amazon, which is not something that I wanted to do um, long term. So my buddy ended up getting me a job at a hotel. It was a great job. It, it truly was a, a good job. I got to interact with so many people, meet so many different kinds of people, all different cultures, you know, backgrounds. It was fantastic. I, not only was did I work the front desk. Next, attached to the front desk was bar and I was the front desk and the bartender. Oh, that must've worked out. Yeah. Well. well, it was working out great at the time. Right. And, uh, that's when it really fucking hit me needing to, like I started, Oh, work would be way more fun if I just got drunk before it, you know, here's 6am, like I'm ripping shots at 6am and it was all for the sake of fun and just getting through my day in a more enjoyable way. It stopped being fun when I needed to take shots in the morning because otherwise, you know, I would just get the shakes, get the withdrawals, you know, it's, but it still wasn't an issue. It still wasn't a problem for me. 
You know, like I, right. I still didn't recognize it. Just the, the we denial. can convince ourselves of anything. Mm -hmm. At least I could when oh, I yeah. was in active addiction. You know, it, it's it's really and actually even after active addiction, right? That's why working on ourselves continuously. It's not just not using or not drinking, mm -hmm. right? It's those addictive behaviors. So I even now I have to worry about convincing myself of shit that is totally ridiculous, right? Because when when the thought of our drug of choice comes in, you're like all rationale goes out the window. We could justify anything. Yep. Then it got to the point where I needed booze to sleep. And then I would, you know, progress to, I had to wake up at three in the morning shaking and I couldn't go back to sleep unless I took another shot. You know, it was just a horrible spiral. And then the pandemic hit. I ended up taking a month off because, you know, it was the height of pandemic. My, my mom has health issues. She's diabetic. You know, she's had, she's almost died from pneumonia. So pandemic scared the shit out of me, you know, like I did. Right. Of course. Yeah. And, uh, so during that month, um, I continued my all day drinking, probably drank even more because it was just more readily available. And then I went back to work and I was still on that same intensity, the same drinking. Then finally, like just after I stopped eating, started feeling like absolute shit all the time. I finally accepted that I had an issue. So for at least a year straight, tried to stop. Like I've quit cigarettes. I've lost hundreds of pounds twice in my life. Well, hundred pounds twice in my life. Like I have that willpower. Like I knew I had the willpower, but I couldn't stop drinking. I would get, you know, two weeks, I would get a few days and it would just go, I would just go right back to it. And that really upset me because, you know, a very prideful person and I looked at myself as weak. Like, how could you not do this? How could you not kick this habit? And all those, you know, periods of sobriety and relapses, you know, relapses truly do get worse each time. What ended up happening was I had probably like 39 days of sobriety. It was the longest I had put together. Um, I was feeling great. And then last October, I got diagnosed with cancer and this was obviously fucking terrifying. And, yeah, uh, I can imagine. Yeah. Holy shit. So needless to say, I caught the cancer early. It was, you know, the tumor just had to be removed. You know, I was good after that. I didn't have to have any, you know, chemo or radiation. Thank God. And then I got put on painkillers after that, which, you know, personally, I've never had an issue with painkillers. Totally understand because those things, unfortunately, are very, very good. And um, the, I was able to get off the painkillers, but within 12 hours of getting off the painkillers, I was right back at the liquor store. And that vicious cycle just started right back over again. The damage was done. The, the damage on the mental health was done. You know, I was off of work for, I think, a month and a half after the surgery. When I went back to work... It was like there was a new manager and she immediately like could tell like nobody at my job could tell or maybe they were just in denial. I don't know. But I felt like nobody could tell that I was drinking. And this new manager came in and she immediately alerted my boss that she smelled alcohol on me. I only made it probably from November to December 31st, just, uh, New Year's Eve. New Year's Eve, I ended up I ended up leaving work early. I left early. I sat in my driveway, blackout drunk, and uh, – 
my mom ended up finding me just passed out the driveway. So then that's when I knew that I really had to stop. So the withdrawals kicked in within a few days and I started hallucinating. Who the hell knew that that was a possibility? But for five or six days straight, I hallucinated. I saw people in my house. I'll keep a PC. I, I saw a lot of little people. I don't know why, but there was just some crazy like hallucinations that I saw. And for probably two or three months after that, well, until March 23rd, then until March 23rd, I was in probably the worst health of my life. My eyes were yellow, like the color of mustard. Even after all that, on around March 1st, I picked up and started drinking again. That is the typical definition of insanity. You know, like going right back to what I literally just died from. And, you know, during my cancer treatment, I got all my blood work done and I got CAT scan. My liver had lesions on it. It was swollen. I was, you know, I had alcoholic hepatitis. Like I was right there, right at the cusp of cirrhosis, but still didn't scare me. Well, it scared me, but not enough, apparently. Right. And then for those three weeks of before I went to rehab, um, those were awful, absolutely awful. Um, and my mom found out again because, again, I was blackout drunk one night, and she came down, and all I remember was my mom saying, just say goodbye. Just say goodbye to me. Say goodbye to me. Um, that's all I remembered from the night was that little tidbit. Well, the next day after she found me like that, I decided that I needed to really stop again. Uh, you know, the recurring theme, the recurring, uh, you know, uh, the recurring whatever. So <laughs> that's exactly what it is. Exactly. The recurring, whatever, the recurring, the, whatever the meaning yep. of life. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I immediately started feeling those withdrawals again. Scared the crap out of me. Didn't want to put my mom through another, you know, five or six days of no sleep hallucinations. So I ended up going to rehab and it was the most incredible thing, the most helpful thing I could have ever done. I finally realized that how important it is to ask for help. Um, found out that I never properly grieved for my father. And mind you, between my father dying, my grandfather died of cancer, throat cancer, and my other grandfather died of lung cancer. So there was a lot of loss in that in my twenties. Yeah. Twenties. Holy moly. Twenties were fucked up time. So yeah, now I went to rehab. I've just been really trying to be vulnerable because the first time I like I was vulnerable um and told told my story like when I was in retreat, it was it was total emotional release, total emotional breakdown in the best way possible. It was like, and, and retreat was the name of the, the treatment center that you went to, right? Right. Okay. Yep. Awesome. So cathartic, just sobbed for like 30 minutes straight. But I felt so much fucking better after that. And I sort of just embraced that ever since that moment I embraced it. And um, so now it's like if I have any sort of issue, I know how dangerous it is to just push it down. You know, I go to AA. I go to, um, you know, retreat alumni meetings and I just try to share whatever's going wrong because you know I, I I know how dangerous it is to internalize it so yeah so now um five or six days away from 10 months of sobriety and That's awesome I'm literally back in school 
because, uh, you know, I had mentioned earlier that I dropped out of college um, while I'm back in school. And the people at, at my rehab facility really inspired me. And I've always been super into psychology, human behavior. And uh, so I realized that the best way to give back and help other people like me is to become a drug and alcohol, you know, recovery counselor. I started my bachelor's back up and it's been amazing so far. So life is so much better. I, I, I can't even, I, I, I can't even say it. Yeah. I can't even like talk about it because like I get choked up how much life, how much better life is now. You know, that's why I said I want to talk about mental health because it has been huge, absolutely huge. The amount of things, anxieties, you know, that kept me inside my little bubble, you know, my little bubble that was filled with alcohol were really easy to recognize once I looked for them. I feel like that's been such a difference to work those issues out, to acknowledge those issues, to acknowledge that I have those issues. I'm big on the serenity prayer, you know, accept the things I cannot control. Uh, the courage to change the wisdom. Fucking A, I don't know. But uh, you know you know the prayer. You know the prayer. Yeah. The wisdom to know the difference between the things I can change and I can't change. Yeah, the courage to change the things I yes. can. Uh, the Wait a minute. Holy shit. Now you're fucking right? me It's up. hard when, it's, oh when, my I, when God. it's not like a robotic thing of just saying it at a meeting. Grant me the serenity. Yep, to, grant me the serenity. Jesus, we're terrible. God, grant me the, grant serenity, me the serenity to accept to accept the things, the things I cannot, I change. cannot change. The courage to change, to change the things, the things I, can. I can. The wisdom and the to wisdom the to. So I right. Why is it so much easier dude, when you say it's it with so someone? So much easier. I had a meeting. What the fuck I, I just chair, happened? I chair a meeting on Tuesday nights, and my topic was literally <laughs> serenity. And I went to talk about the prayer, and I'm like, I total blank. But uh, yeah, I don't know how. Oh that my god, it's progress, not perfection. That's right. That's my. That's another one of my favorite things. Exactly. And, um, that, that's a good cover. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so I recognize those things, those problems with myself, those problems with my mental health, you know, and I recognize that I can control those things, you know, but the first thing I have to do is acknowledge. Like I said, once I started to look for them, it was easy to see them because those things caused so much isolation and just I was afraid of the world, you know. I was just afraid of the world. I was in my own little bubble. I went to work. Though, I hear you. And the only reason why I went to work was because it made me money so I could buy booze. It's like our whole lives just revolve around our, our substance of choice it, yeah. at the time. It, it takes us hostage mm -hmm. in, in a sense. And, and I love what you said about, you know, once you look for these things, right, the, these character defects, I, I have them too. Once I looked for them, mm -hmm. right, and really worked on myself because just not using, right, wasn't enough. Right. I had to work on me because mm -hmm. the problem resides within me. Right. And I've tried. I've been I tried to get this right for 15 years. You know, I moved my whole life to North Carolina thinking that it was New York's fault, New York City's fault. Mm -hmm. Why? Yep. Why I was an addict. Right. Because it was everywhere. Right. So I went to North Carolina and within six months down there, I, I was in the county jail doing the same shit that I always did. You know, so people say, you know, people, places and things, mm -hmm. avoid them, you know, and yes, that does help, right? Obviously, if you want to not use or drink, right, you probably shouldn't go to bars, right? You shouldn't be hanging out on the, on the street corner mm -hmm. or with the people that you used with, but it's not going to fix it, avoiding those things. We have to fix it within us, 
right? So, and that's why I think for a lot of people, fellowships help, whether it's oh. AA or, or NA or, or sober faction or recovery Dharma, you know, whatever it is, right? If one doesn't work for you, there's, I guarantee there's one out there that does or will, you know, if you give it a shot. Uh, but I think that's why they're so important, right? Because so it gets important. us to talk mm -hmm. and share with people. Mm -hmm. uh, and before we go too much farther into, into this, I just wanted to say, because a big thing about this show, I, I want to get across to people is that, at least for me, when I was in active addiction, I thought I was the only one. Mm -hmm. Right. I, I was alone. Me too. Nobody knew what I was going through. Mm -hmm. Nobody could understand it. And there's always someone out there that can identify with anyone else that's going through this. Like you said, opiates wasn't an issue for mm -hmm. you. For me, alcohol is not an issue for right. me at all. But God forbid you put opiates in front of me. You know, I mean, I think now I'm, I'm strong enough to say, get that away from me. But there was a time mm -hmm. where there wasn't enough in the world. Yep. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And the thing like with, with your father, you know, I have, I had a mother that struggled from active addiction. Unfortunately, the first time uh, I ever found heroin uh, was in her apartment, you know, and uh, we had a very uh, strange relationship for a while when it came to using. We would actually use together. Uh, and it took me a long time to be able to say that and not be embarrassed by it because I heard other people that said, oh, I, I did that too. Yeah. You know, I, I had that same life. But she also, you know, she, uh, this disease took her out you know, and she's no longer with us. You know, what, what else was I going to touch on here? The willpower piece of this, you know, when you said you, you have that willpower, I did as well. You know, I mean, I was active duty military. I'd always, anything I wanted to do in my life, I could do a hundred percent, 110% mm -hmm. and do it better than the next guy. Right. But this is one thing that it doesn't matter how strong you are. And it's not about being strong it's a medical issue that deals with chemicals in your brain we cannot do this you can't help it. alone yeah and if you do do it alone you could fucking die you could fucking right? die especially from alcohol like we don't give medical advice right but if your problem is alcohol or benzos or a mix of the two or those mixed with anything else get i mean I, everyone should get professional help if they're no, in yes, active yes. addiction i think it's the best mm -hmm. but those especially will kill you or they they very well can yes right mm -hmm. I, I know uh my my partner uh you know she actually had a benzo issue seven years ago she's got seven years clean but she detoxed herself in a bathtub for like four days and when i heard that i was like jesus mm -hmm. christ like you could have that, that could have been it yeah. for you yeah you know what i mean but anyway, so back to the, the mental health uh, aspect of this. Let me ask you a, a question, mm -hmm. Alex. What do you think, you know, w with mental health and addiction, is it a, a chicken and the egg thing? Like what comes first? Does one cause the other? Uh, or do you think it's different for everyone? I can only speak from my personal experience. My opinion, addiction was a symptom of my underlying mental health issues. I feel like my brain... This is the way I, this is, again, this is my own viewpoint of my, you know, road to uh, alcoholism. Um, you know, I had trauma early on in life. I was uncomfortable and the trauma caused me anxiety. You know, I had social anxiety and all of a sudden the booze came in. I feel like my brain was like, oh, well, we're not feeling that anymore. So we need more of this. And I feel like it was the mental health that really kicked it off. I always kind of equate it to the diseases that attack 
the body, you know, and the, the, the brain thinks it's helping the body when actually it's killing you inside my head. Like I truly thought that this was the answer to my problems. Then you get physically addicted to it and you need that shit. Like you need it. I can't even describe how much my moral compass was compromised. You know, it was alcohol was number one. Fuck everything else, you know? Right. Well, it's like life in a bottle, at least for, for me with, with opiates, right? If you put food, air, water, shelter, and opiates in front of me and I was sick, mm -hmm. right? The pain from that was so great that I would knock everything else off the table and go straight for those opiates mm -hmm. because it's the only thing that's going to fix the way I feel. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's it's nuts. And there's been plenty of tests that show, right, that mentally uh, it's a very hard choice not to yes. make once you're in the throes of it. And I agree with you 100 percent with what you said. I'm actually the same way. Right. I think my addiction uh, started because of underlying mental health issues. Right. Always ever since I was a little kid felt less than I don't know why. Right. Just didn't fit in anywhere I went. Was very good at putting on a, a facade. Mm right mm -hmm. for, for everyone to see but i felt like nobody knew who i actually was but uh, i do think that even people that don't that may not feel that that's the case for them right if you go through active addiction right and you're really in this right and you really have an issue i don't think anyone can come out the other end without some sort of of mental health issue whether it's it's lowered self-esteem lower self-worth oh, yeah. because of of what you've been through right or or anything else there, there's got to be something just because of the chemical changes in in people's brains and that's another thing that i'd like to ask you about is things like situational mm -hmm. depression and situational anxiety because a lot of people when they get uh sober for the first time right there are doctors there that say hey you know you're, you're depressed you're anxious like here's here's something to help with that mm -hmm. right which, which is great right as long as it's not something like a benzo right, right. for anxiety right Th there are other options out there if your doctor tries to give you that and you have a problem with addiction kick that doctor in the nuts or the other part uh <laughs> and and keep it moving find another doctor just like meetings they may not all fit you but there's one out there that will I think it's important for people to realize that, you know, there is something called situational depression, right? Or situational circumstances where, yeah, of course you're depressed with what you just went through. And this is something to help, almost like a crutch while you're getting through it, but you're not going to have to be on it forever, mm -hmm. right? And I think that's important to remember that for people that don't like the idea of taking these medications, it may be something that just softens the blow, right? And, and makes your, your road to recovery a little bit easier in the beginning. And if you tell a doctor right from the beginning, like, hey, I don't want to do this forever, you know, they most likely would love to see you, you know, wean off under that doctor's care. Now, some people, you know, do have, you know, a major depressive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, a lot of different things, PTSD, where they may take these medications for a long period of time. So yeah, just once, once you had talked about, you know, coming out a, and taking those medications, you know, I just wanted to throw that in there that it's not a forever thing mm -hmm. normally, if you don't want it to be. Right. And in my opinion, there's still such a stigma around mental health. I feel like a lot of people out there are too afraid to, you know, get help because they're afraid of being put on medication. You know, there's such a stigma like, oh, Oh, you hear he's on, he's on antidepressants? Like, he's crazy, you know? Like, it's just, 
there's such a stigma, but I am one of those people that is diagnosed with major depressive disorder and generalized anxiety, social anxiety. And I've been on them for 11 years now. Um, I don't see myself getting off them anytime soon, to be honest. And I accept that, you know. I, right. I, and that's okay exactly. if it helps, right? And it helps you lead a happy, mm -hmm. productive life, right? And it helps you stay sober. Then that's fucking awesome. Mm -hmm. And there also is too, though, um, the opposite of the spectrum is there's some people that think that they're, it's like a magic pill. You know, like right. people get the antidepressant and, you know, all their problems are solved. But, uh, you know, a therapist told me antidepressants are probably only like 20% of the battle. You know, it's just correcting your brain chemistry. You have to put the work in to really dig deep of the underlying issues that goes beyond just a chemical imbalance, you know. Because they go hand in hand. And there's ways to help with mm -hmm. that, right? Things like like me personally, I don't take uh, antidepressants, but I do take a medicine for my mental health. And it's called talk therapy. And it's called group therapy, right? Through the, the meetings that I go to and the fellowships uh, that I go it's to. the best medicine you get. Exactly. Because you just get that shit off your chest, right? It's a place uh, of no judgment where you just say, hey, this is what's going on. And sometimes if you don't want to talk, nobody makes you talk, right? You could just sit there and listen. But you might hear something, at least mm -hmm. I do right that that helps me that i can identify with there's always something i can walk away with out of any meeting or any group or whatever you want to call it or a talk therapy session and i didn't believe in that shit for a really long time like they, when i was a kid and my parents got divorced they tried to put me in with a talk therapist and i just sat there and played uno with this woman and just wasted their money until they finally said you know uno costs three dollars this therapy shit costs a lot more let's just get him a deck of cards and and bring mm -hmm. him home right <laughs> and not make them do this once a week. Uh, but I just wouldn't do it. For some reason, I didn't believe in it. I was one of those people that was scared of of the stigma, mm -hmm. right? Of what people would think. Right. You know, if I was in school and somebody said, well, you know, uh, Kenny's going to, you know, he talks to somebody once a week because his parents are getting divorced. I didn't want yeah. that. You know, that, that's what a, not, what, a, what a nutcase. Yeah, that's not cool, mm -hmm. right? But fuck that. Mm -hmm. It is cool because, yeah. you know, if when now that I, I take advantage of it, I'm okay with myself and my life. And I have a group of friends. I have a network of sober people that know where I'm coming from. You're one of them, mm -hmm. right? We, we, we talk, I see in meetings all the all time, time, right? And these are people that I can lean on. I can talk to, they can talk to me. And, and actually other people in my network talking to me helps me because it makes me feel accountable, mm -hmm. right? These people are counting on me and I can help them. Mm -hmm. And that helps with the self-worth, the self-esteem, all that stuff. Mental health really is anyone that says they don't have any mental health issues, in my opinion, is a liar. Mm -hmm. Everyone has something, yep. something, even the tiniest thing where they're not happy where their life is. And it's not about being thrilled all the time, right? right? It's right. Rel relatively happy. Mm -hmm. So I want to touch on something that you mentioned that uh, you didn't believe in the therapy. Well, one thing that I did not believe in was AA. I am not a religious person. Um, I went to a Catholic school for high school. And to be honest, it kind of turned me off. I was so against AA when I was trying to quit by myself. It's funny how you could go to the doctor and ask for help for drinking. And they tell you, oh, well, have you tried AA? A doctor knows that that is the best medicine for you. Like there's not much else that he, the doctor could do because he, right. you, need to, you need your own people. 
You think I could go to a random person and tell him that I was in a liquor store at 7.45 a.m. waiting for it to open, shaking so uncontrollably that when I grabbed my handle of vodka, I couldn't even put my credit card inside the credit card reader. The guy had to take the credit card from my hands that were shaking uncontrollably and put it in. Like, I can't tell normal people that. That's the stigma. That's the, you're like, you're nuts. Like, that's that's crazy stuff. Yeah, but then when you go to one of these groups, Every, people say, oh, yeah, I, that happened oh, to me, too. Oh, that's yeah, no, that's oh, no big deal. Like, yeah, yeah. The, guess what I did. Exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah. And and another thing is I want to point out, like me, I'm not a, a super religious guy. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. But there's so many fellowships so many. out there that if, if religion's not your thing and that's the only thing pushing you away from something like this, look at and, and hear me out when I say this, right? Like the satanic sober yeah. faction. Okay. And those guys, all right, if you look it up, they do not believe in Satan. Not Satan all right. Yes. This is not <laughs> Satanist stuff. But what it is, is they're just non-religious. They're completely non-religious. They have seven rituals. Uh, that's what they're, the, their version of the 12 steps. But they're all about caring for people, caring for yourself, and and getting sober, mm -hmm. right? They have meetings all the time, at least once a day, you know, on Zoom. They have some in person. There's a bunch of great people in there. And it's just people trying to do the same thing, but they don't talk about God, right? right? They don't talk about spiritual stuff because they don't believe in, in that, which is fine, mm -hmm. right? If that works for someone getting sober, then I'm all for it. You know right. what I mean? And there's so many others too. Recovery Dharma, right, is, yeah. is a Buddhist 100%. thing. There's a smart, I think smart is is touches on some Christian-based God stuff possibly. But you got to remember, they always say a God of your understanding, right? And and that could be anything, right? That could be the people in the room. That was the biggest thing for me when I got to AA, you know, because I thought it was a religious cult. Like, I'll be honest. AA has changed my life. Like, there's no doubt about it. I take the God stuff with a grain of salt. And I just take in everything else. Um, my higher power, you know, I, I do have a higher power. I, have you seen the Big Lebowski? Oh yeah. The the dude. Like when I think of my when I think of my higher power, I think of somebody very similar to the dude, just an all loving, all powerful, chill fucking guy. That's amazing. Like that, I'm that, sorry, but that yeah, really is like amazing. That is, they peed on my rug. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it really tied the room together. Like. <laughs> Yeah. So, but it's just, you know, that's me. And I hope other people who are turned off by AA and the religious aspect just realize that there's so much more than just religion in AA. There is fellowship. There are people, you walk into a room and people inherently give a shit about you. you know, there's so many addicts who feel alone. Well, you know, there's a reason why you are not alone is displayed in every single AA meeting. It's incredible. The people that I meet there is just second to none, like some of the best people I've ever met. Fellow addicts have been, are truly, in my opinion, one of the most compassionate people because we have been beat down. We've been through the gutter. We know how it feels, you know, to be low. And we don't want anybody else to feel that way. Right. And we've come back and anyone else can as well, right? This isn't just, it's not like there's a secret formula no. out there for, for beating this. You know, uh, you, yes, you need some help getting through the withdrawals, but after that, it's really easy, right? Take suggestions. It, it, it's crazy how really simple it is. If you break it down, just don't use your substance and don't drink. Like that's right. It's, it's so obviously it's not simple at all. Like that shit's hard. Right. But when you well, they it, call it a simple program yeah. for for complicated people. Exactly, exactly. I can't say enough good things about AA, and I just hope that somebody listening now 
gives AA a shot. And it's not for everybody, though. It's not. We all walk our own path. If you give AA a shot and it's not for you, at least you give it a shot. Yeah, and then try NA and try Recovery Dharma and try the Satanic Sober Faction. You know, in Connecticut, we have Aware. Like, they'll come to your house. Yep. Like, and you're you're 100% right. You know, and, and there's it's can be scary sometimes, too, right? Going to your first oh, yeah. meeting, right? Because a lot mm -hmm. of people do think, like, what do these people do? They go to this church basement once once a week right they're all yep. everybody knows each other do they have secret handshakes right right, right. who's the grand poobah kind of deal yeah and it can be scary going in there not knowing anybody right, right? and just mm -hmm. sitting in the back of the room but there will always be you know if they'll always ask if anyone's new right and if you put your hand up and say i'm new here i don't know what the hell i'm doing you know that there will you will be surrounded by people that want to give you their number they don't want to take yours from you you know they're not going to push you mm -hmm. but they'll say here take my number give a call we hope to see you next week and, and everybody or whenever the next meeting is right and everybody is super super kind but there's zoom meetings now yeah. everywhere because of the pandemic even at two in the morning you don't want to <laughs> go to a meeting seven. in your hometown yeah you can go to a meeting in fucking mm -hmm. australia yep. wherever the hell you want right they are everywhere and maybe that's the best way to see how it works right before you go if you're you're a very socially anxious person i think anyone would have some trepidation walking into one of these for the first time whether you have social anxiety or not absolutely one thing that i that i noticed right off the rip was when you walk into an a room and this is kind of what eased my mind you automatically have a connection with somebody in that room you automatically have a connection with everybody in the room you have that mutual the mutual hardship that you both went through and, you know, that connection is really, really powerful. And it really eased my mind to know that for a change, I'm not walking into a room where I think that everybody's going to judge me. No, absolutely. Like, obviously, I, I felt that way in the beginning. But I, the more I went and the more I sat there and I listened, I realized that I wasn't alone and that nobody's judging. Nobody's judging. No, not at all. And the biggest thing that everyone has in common is the one requirement to be there, right? The desire to stop drinking or using uh that's really all it takes to to be part of this but let, let me ask you my friend we're, we're getting a little long in the tooth here when it comes to, to yes, time sir. for the show but uh if the and thank you so much for coming on and sharing your your awesome story and well not awesome in the beginning but the end the ending is fucking awesome yeah, yeah. right and it's, <laughs> it's just gonna keep getting better uh but if there's someone out there listening to this that needs help right and doesn't know what to do they feel lost like we both felt lost what, what would you tell them if you could tell them one thing you're not alone and don't be afraid to reach out us you know addicts we need each other we can't we can't do it alone you know it's like a five percent chance that you could kick addiction by yourself try to find the courage to reach out i know how hard it is we're all in this together any addict will go out of his way to help a fellow addict that's something that i learned that's a fact. Well said, my friend. And you are not alone, right? And don't forget, everyone, uh, you can always reach out to us at contact at therecoveryradioshow.com uh, if you'd like to shoot a message to Alex, you think anything about the show, or you just have questions about meetings in your area, anything like that. There's always Google as well. I mean, the AA websites are always mm -hmm. there, NA websites, whatever you guys need. 
uh, always feel free to reach out. Check out our Twitter page and follow us. Our Twitter handle is at MyRadioRecovery. You can find us on every major streaming service. Just make sure you subscribe and like. It definitely helps the show out. And, uh, you know, we don't make money off this. We just do it to do it and, and to try to help someone. So, Alex, thank you again. Uh, you're worth it. I'm worth it. And everyone out there, you're worth it as well. So I'll, I'll see you soon, my friend. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, man. Have a good one. I think that went pretty well. I think so.